Thank you to all our transcript volunteers. You're doing a great job helping us make sure the transcripts are published together with the podcast. If you'd also like to help out with the podcast, just email us at hey at uxpodcast.com. That's H-E-Y or H-E-J. You choose. UX Podcast Episode 239. You're listening to UX Podcast coming to you from Stockholm, Sweden. Helping the UX community explore ideas and share knowledge since 2011. We are your hosts, Pat Axpel. And James Royal Lawson. With listeners in 194 countries from Moldova to Greece. Anna Dahlstrom, UXer for over 20 years, freelancer for the past 10, mentor, speaker, meetup organizer, and now author. Anna recently published Storytelling and Design through O'Reilly. Principles and tools for defining, designing, and selling multi-device design projects. So we invited Anna back onto the podcast to talk to us about her book. Anna, this, um, you've been on the... This is your third appearance on the show, um, but only your second as a guest. Because you joined us... Uh, you were hosting the 200th episode of UX Podcast along with um, Lisa Welshman. I was. Thank you very much for having me then. That was very special and a very good good little chat, I thought. And the first time we had you on the show was way back in 2014 when you, um, you joined us to talk about um, deliverables. I did, yeah. That was six years ago. <laughs> when we were all just children. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yep. So, so tell us the story of how, how you went from there to get into this passion of storytelling and even writing a book about it. Well, my dad, he's a writer. And we, when I've, I've just moved back home to Sweden, but when I lived in Copenhagen and when I lived in London and I got home, my dad, who's very fond of making trips, um, like little trips around Sweden and Skåne, where the part of Sweden where we live, we, um, we used to just talk about work. He's, um, he's very good at paying interest into what I do and what my siblings do. And we start talking about work and obviously talk about his work as well. So as we went on those walks and talked, I realized when I heard him talking about the kind of his love for getting, for piecing everything together in the books that he's writing, I kind of realized that there's a lot of overlaps and similarities between writing books and and the work that we do at one point i can't remember exactly when it was but a conference conference in london user center design that reached out to me and asked if i wanted to do a talk and i kind of figured maybe a talk about storytelling and design could be could be a nice topic so i was a little late um at kind of doing the slides for my talk as as sometimes happens um so i called my dad a few days before and i said you know what what do you kind of what do you think makes up the good ingredients for writing writing a book and as we got to talking this this kind of the talk that i was going to give kind of almost built itself because there were so many good kind of overlaps so I gave that talk and then I kind of worked, reiterated on that and gave it at some other conferences and I was about to give it at Amuse in uh, Budapest when O'Reilly reached out to me um, and asked me if I was interested in doing some content for them, whether that was kind of some 
online course or maybe writing a book and I was like nah writing a book me no you're crazy I can never write a book and who am I to write a book but then as I kind of thought about it the more the more kind of the ideas sunk in the more I realized you know what it would be really nice to write a book so I reached I kind of responded to um, my then contact at O'Reilly called Nick and said you know what I would actually like to write a book so that's kind of how it all how it all started Maybe you can give us a little bit of a um, reminder, or maybe even introduce us to the anatomy of a story. Sure. Um, I mean, Aristotle was the first one who kind of pointed out that the way in which to tell a story has a profound impact on the full human experience of the same. So he said that a story is kind of something that holds, it has a beginning and it has a middle and it has an end. Um, and he didn't actually talk about three acts, but that's kind of what it's um, turned into after after his time. So in general now, a lot of people, when it comes to writing scripts, for example, or plays, they still work with a kind of a three-act structure. So you have your your first act, act where you get introduced to, you, um, to your main character, and then at the end of that act, I kind of realise, you know, they are faced with a kind of dramatic question that changes everything, where you kind of go... Will life ever be the same for the main character? And then you come into the second act when you learn more about your main character and they learn more about themselves. So they usually find themselves in a worse situation before things kind of get a bit better. Um, And towards the second act, that's kind of a writing point again, which leads to the third act, which is where you have your climax and you find out if, if life ever got the same and if the boy and the girl actually ended up happily together ever after. When it comes to kind of the anatomy of a good story, I guess stories should have that kind of beginning, a middle and an end. And it doesn't have to be something that's that's linear and always starts right at the beginning. You could start start in the future and then jump backwards and forwards. But there the needs to be that needs to be some kind of theme um, in there or what we kind of in Swedish talk about kind of as a red thread as well, something that binds everything together that that gives gives the story a purpose and that kind of has a, a message behind what you're trying to say. So, yeah, I mean, there's so many things to what makes for a good story. Obviously, you need to have your characters and the characters, they need to they need to have some kind of character arc, some kind of development that they go through, something that makes them something that makes you vetted into the character and kind of makes you want to follow them and find out what actually happens to them. Um, and there needs to be something, some suspension and some tension that pulls you in and makes makes sure that you turn the page so you want to find out what happens next. Lots of different things, I guess, but um, those are the main, main things that you have a narrative structure to your story in one way or another, whether that's carefully planned or whether that happens a bit more as you kind of as you kind of write things. What strikes me is when you start understanding the complexities of, of storytelling and everything that goes on and how much you have to keep in your head with the character development and the environment and and, and your eye on the goal. I mean, it sounds so difficult to bring all of that into the design space to what is UX and, and, and digital design. Um, what does that look like? How How does that Bring, how is that brought over to our world? This is again where the fascination in me grew because there's so many overlaps. So I'm a big believer in that in the beginning of a project, everything is chaotic and it's all up in the air. And that's that's actually a good thing. That chaos is something that we should embrace and really kind of not be scared of and not try to pinpoint down too soon. But you need to start 
get all of your kind of ideas out and you need to realize what's relevant and what's not relevant and the only way to do that is really by understanding the different moving parts and when it comes to writing a book so obviously I researched how how people go about writing a book and I had my own experience of writing a book as well there's numerous ways that you can go about it some some prefer to have a lot more kind of a structured approach and for me when it came to writing this book when a publisher reaches out if you reaches out to a publisher they often ask you to produce an outline so an outline is you know an overview of each kind of chapter that the book will include and then a bit of a summary of what that chapter would be about and then obviously talking about the audience for the book and why it's relevant and how it compares to other books out there so having that outline up front when you write something really helps you structure structure that story um, and in the same way when it comes to product product design and UX design having that structure of what the experience actually is the full end-to-end experience will also help you structure things and really think things through so a lot of the time when I work with teams and individuals I see them getting jumping straight in um, and not really considering the full picture. They get very bogged down into the view or the page that they're on or one particular kind of journey without understanding how that fits into the bigger picture. But also, more importantly, how that fits into people's lives. Because in the end, everything that we do, it's for people and it's not for people as a group. It's for individual people. It needs to resonate with individual people in order to provide some value. And that's where actually understanding the story of people understanding our product story and see how those two fit together. That's where applying kind of principle for storytelling and also just in general thinking about that everything is a story. Every product experience is a story. If you sat in front of your computer doing something that has a story running to it. Like right now I'm sitting recording this podcast and before I recorded this podcast I had to put a baby to sleep. I made myself a nice little cup of coffee and I sat down and tried to do something nice around it and that would have been a different experience if my daughter didn't fall asleep and if I spilled the coffee or if, you know, something fucked up. Oh, excuse my language, but, you know, those things are really important. Um, when it comes to us doing things online, understanding the context around things, because that impacts people's experience with it, with the product or service that we're going to use as well. You know, you see people, when I lived in London, I saw someone using as a self-checkout machine, and they got stuck. They they had to pay by card, but they just got stuck and they wanted to pay with um, with coins and notes and it just wasn't an option to pay with cash. So understanding the frustrations around things will help you understand how to deliver a better experience as well. Given that every experience is unique, so, so effectively every story is unique, how do we mm-hmm. then as designers manage all those multiple combinations or multiple themes or or red threads that that are happening all the time with what we design we obviously can't you know if we are designing out experiences and doing user journeys or doing personas or what it is we can't do that for every single user who's going to be using our products and service that's just not realistic it's not valuable but it's understanding it's understanding the nuances of things it's about making sure that you don't just stop at your main audience but you understand the variations of your audience that you understand the backstories and the different kind of backstories that comes comes to it um we work a lot with kind of custom experience maps for example and those are great for piecing different things together so there's sometimes a tendency now when things are so complex and everything 
you know, there's not one start to a journey anymore. There used to be a time when we kind of knew that people would arrive on the homepage and then they would linearly go through our website page by page until they got to kind of the end of it. But right now with social and with search, a lot of people are run, arriving right smack in the middle and we don't really have any control of the message that might come with that and lead them to a page because of social, for example. So for us, it's very much about making sure that we, when we deliver or when we work on the product experiences that we work on, that we understand that irrespectively on where you are in that product experience, you understand where that part of the story, that part of the experience sits in the bigger experience story, so to speak, and how it's connected to kind of before and to after and to the different goals that users actually have in there as well. For me, and I know, you know, I've been freelance for a long time and um, sometimes you get a pushback because people, they want to they wanna get progress quite quickly. Um, so for me, it's actually about spending a bit more time up front, just understanding the context and the people and the situations and the, the problem area in a really profound way before you start doing too much work. So not getting, not just starting working on things, but actually understanding all the different sides of it and then it's easier to filter out what matters and what doesn't. I just love how you reflect on the choose your own adventure stories in that there's no linear way that people go through websites that we usually map out these user stories and they always look linear. Yeah. But uh, if we acknowledge them as user choose your own adventure stories, I guess then you acknowledge that people can go in all different directions. Yeah, and they can and there's... Um... That's a lot of the fascination, I guess. I think as a general kind of theme or kind of if you're going to keep one thing in mind of how people experience things at the moment, it is very much a choose-your-own-adventure story. So in traditional stories, you know, the writer would is the one who tells the story and they kind of dictate what the story is like. So, you know, page by page, you go to the next one and you don't, as a reader, you don't actually have a say in how that story evolves. Whereas in choose-your-own-adventure stories, the the reader becomes the, the kind of protagonist and they make the decisions and based on the decisions they make, that then determines what happens next in the story. And that's very much how it is nowadays. You know, at any given point, our users can decide to abandon our products or service or they can go to a competitor or they can skip something. And, you know, we all know that people, no matter how many instructions you give them, they will still ask for, you know, what about this and what about that? And you go, it's right there on the page, but they don't see it. So... It's very much about trying to choreograph and kind of narrate things in a way that it can work no matter in which order that people will come about and experience it. And actually, of course, it doesn't apply to absolutely everything because some things are going to be linear ordering processes and so forth where, you know, it's not about the user choosing what to do, but we have to do things in a linear way. In general, when it comes to, to websites and looking for information and researching things, it's very much a kind of a the user decides what to do and in which order and what they want to take in and not. You've got to make sure you've catered for a, a number of um, variations within that part of the journey, just like you would doing an adventure story. Yeah, it is. And it's, you know, we always, when we map out and do user journeys, we often do the happy journey. We forget about all of the the nuances and the levels that can come between the happy and the unhappy journey. Um, there's a great exercise in kind of actually mapping out what the happy journey will look like and then doing the exact opposite. So what's the unhappy equivalent of this moment? What would that mean? And then 
in between that actually mapping out so if it was just a little bit unhappy or a little bit less happy what would that actually mean and if you do that you start mm. to figure out well that there could be so many different levels of that experience i guess and when you then again kind of combine that into the wider business side of things so thinking about customer support if you know you know if you order something for example and it becomes delayed or you don't get an order notification or there's no way of tracking things like there always needs to be a response to that there always needs to be a way of um, kind of continuing on that journey and that story to helping the user along on that path no matter if it's a happy or not happy one so understanding what the main happy one is because obviously we want things to be happy but it's it's seldom frictionless for people there's usually something that happens along the way that kind of digress things a little bit and those are the kind of nuances that are really important and we're turning to the kind of concepts of main plots and subplots in traditional storytelling can be quite useful and there's you know mm. again something i found fascinating is that people in traditional storytelling have ways of visualizing those things and visualizing the different storylines and the different kind of narrative arcs in there um, which i think is quite an applicable way of or bringing something to life in product design as well I think it's really, really interesting to think about how much we do focus on the, the good stories and, and we ignore tragedies and we ignore the, the bad things. Uh, I guess because it's, sometimes it's very hard to deal with some of those. Uh, in a business context, you don't really want to focus on when things go wrong and when things don't go as you maybe hoped they would or your manager wants them to go. That's, hmm. So that, that gives us a challenge. Yeah, no, absolutely. But it's also, I mean, I'm not going to talk through the experience or talk through the example because it's a bit of a morbid one but you know there's massive examples at the moment when it comes to facebook kind of mem remembering what happened nine years ago and um serving ads and so forth online where you know in looking at what's being served to the user we we forget the bigger context and we forget that actually serving this ad at this point might not be a good thing you know at the moment of course with coronavirus everyone can can kind of um, identify or kind of feel uh, empathy with people and kind of understand what it'd be like if you lost someone, for example. So having that understanding and knowing that sometimes life is life is grim and there's certain points that you might not want to be reminded of or people might go through different really hard things financially or in their own relationship at home and all of that things actually kind of that impacts a lot of things um, online as well. It's interesting because it seems then that in a business context, you really only want to acknowledge emotions that are happy, mm. and it's almost like the other emotions are not allowed, or, or you're, you, you and you don't even talk about them. Whereas people, of course, contain multitudes, and you need to allow for all the emotions to happen. You do, and that's what you know when you when you look at what makes a story real. It's about including those aspects into that story because life isn't linear there's there's ups and downs ups and downs and in a good story there needs to be ups and downs as well there needs to be some kind of tension otherwise the story becomes flat and the characters don't really develop and similarly when in product design we need to we need to accommodate and think about those different nuances as well and i'm very much a believer in that as much as possible we we need to do what's what's really really good for our users and try to help them along in in their lives and um removing frictions and removing tension and kind of mental overload is a big big part of that and for that we need to understand also the unhappy side of things 
Otherwise, it's taking things at a bit too too high a level. I believe that's what I believe brings the brings the best experience to life and helps the business. It's that's you know, if it's good for the users and if it helps people, then it will help the business as well. So you have a chapter called "How Traditional Storytelling Is Changing." How is it changing? In terms of if you're going to write a book and so forth, there's various ways in which traditional storytelling are remaining the same but also changing. We see. We see now with obviously data playing a, a big part when it comes to what's being produced um, for Netflix and for Amazon Prime and so forth. Some of the time it's really, really driving what's being produced. Some of the times it's kind of just accommodating things based on that. You have kind of transmedia storytelling where where you let stories unfold across media, which is very applicable to, to product design as well. There was a TV show in Norway called Scam, became really uh, popular where you followed a group of teenagers, I believe, at a, at a high school. And in between the episodes that aired each week on TV, you could follow their conversations on the website and, and on Instagram and so forth and see text messages between them and Instagram posts and stuff. So it kind of made the whole thing quite feel quite real. Um, but traditional storytelling is is changing in in one way as well, the whole on-demand culture in terms of that we, we no longer sit down and wait for you know, when I was a kid, we sat down and waited for Friday nights and the Disney hour. That was kind of the big highlight. We don't have that as much anymore. We got, you know, we can just binge watch things, obviously waiting for the next episode of um, um, the Tiger King or whatever coming out is still a still thing that we do. But generally, we decide what we want to <laughs> watch when and we just kind of flip between things. So, yeah, the audience, again, is becoming a part of the story in many ways and kind of determining a lot more a lot in there and having a lot more say and a lot more kind of I want it, I want it now kind of thing. We don't have schedules in the same way, TV schedules. We don't have no. opening times in the same way because online shops are open 24 hours. And, um, yeah, a lot of that um, structure that maybe held up our stories or you know, group or give context to our stories um for free as such when we're building stuff has, has gone for better or for worse because i think that i mean it, it seems that especially it's like, like in times of crises you realize that that those times in li in your life where you are doing something together is important so when you actually have scheduled events those events also become important so it's there it seems almost like there's a struggle between on demand and scheduled events and how they actually affect your well-being no, absolutely. And I guess one of the main things as well is that everyone nowadays is kind of a storyteller. We we all share kind of stories on on Instagram, on Facebook, on, you know, TikTok in various ways and um, brands also having to adapt to how they tell their story as well. It's no longer the really long commercials anymore, but it's kind of short bite bite sized things and it needs to work across different platforms and kind of work in a different in a different way and have a purpose behind it some something that resonates with people so the audience is mm. becoming more more demanding in a way i guess but that's right that's good now that's hugely interesting i mean so yeah everybody is becoming a storyteller or a lot of more people are storytellers now today than were before mm. uh, thanks to these platforms but does that mean that because sometimes it's it's almost like these stories are being told and people are saying they're so authentic Whereas you realize the more you follow them, that 
they're perhaps not as authentic as they claim to be where because they also aim to tell a story that puts them in a better light yeah uh, so stories are extremely powerful but they're also very persuasive yes which means that they can sometimes be used for harm i guess yeah no absolutely and i mean one of the main reasons for using storytelling in in product design as well is actually the persuasive impact it has because the way we process information if it's embedded in story is completely different compared to if it's just presented as raw raw facts um but you know we talk a lot about ethics in design at the moment so everything everything should be ethical um and everything should be authentic but there's always going to be people who misuse it or who don't completely abide by the rules i guess and I think it's okay to not be authentic as long as you're open about it. As long as you're yeah. saying that I'm telling you a story now because I want to, there's something else I'm after. I'm, yeah. I'm looking for an emotion, but I'm not necessarily telling the whole truth. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> One thing I was thinking about um, asking briefly was was that some of the things we talked about during this chat is um, with different um, variations of things, um, adventure stories, um unique stories um schedules not being there at all it, it feels like we've we've made we have to be very packaged um modular i think is something you mentioned in the book how how, mm. how do we work modular um with stories that comes back into a bit of the choose to run adventure stories again so if you think about in a book that's kind of written so the audience can you know decide the different um at different po- points in the journey, what they want to do, there's different nodes that bind it all together. And then based on that, there's going to be different kind of outcomes to it. So, you know, there might be option one, option two, option three. So those kind of become individual modules, I guess, of that story and then storylines following that. Um, in product design, we, you know, obviously with responsive design now and designing for various devices, we are generally working at things, uh, working with experience being more modular because we we kind of have to but there's a lot that you can do now with technology as well so dynamic publishing making sure that if you know the first time you come to a website you you need a bit more kind of background information for example the second time you might still want a bit of that background information in there because maybe you didn't stay too long last time or maybe you need a bit more kind of context before you really get familiar with it but the more of a loyal and returning uh, user or customer you are, the less you actually you actually need those kind of, this is the kind of instructional aspect, I guess. So there's an opportunity there to gradually swapping out pieces of content for something that's more relevant to people and also tying that in with based on where you came from. So what touch point actually drove you to, to the website so you can continue that kind of journey respectively. So... There's a big opportunity there of um, really, again, kind of coming back to understanding the complexities and where people are coming from, their backstories, and what that should mean in terms of the narrative experience on your product and service afterwards. Um, so doing, kind of referring to a bit of the choose your own adventure stories and the modularity, so how you actually visualise, um, how you would visualise the story narrative doing a similar kind of exercise for product for your product experience can be a really useful one in terms of understanding what needs to change at different points in terms of adding the most value and being the most um, relevant to users. 
I, I really love this is this is wonderful to think that what what you're suggesting I think is um, we need to listen to the story being told and use data points or use information to help us understand yes. the story that a visitor or user or customer is 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 living or experiencing in order to to serve them better future parts of the story absolutely otherwise it becomes a one-size-fits-all and in some instances the one-size-fits-all is absolutely fine but you know i've gone back to this example numerous times when i've um when i've talked through this but many years ago now me and my partner we um we completely refurbished our flat in London and did a loft conversion. And that process, kind of just going through that process, there were so many learning points every single day where the builders asked us to pick out certain things like spindles. I didn't even know being Swedish, I didn't understand the word spindles. And we had to choose a bath. And, you know, when you start researching things, you realise there's not one bath, there's numerous baths. And you need to make a decision on what kind of baths. And all those things at the beginning... When we landed on websites, there was no, they just presented you with a choice straight away. There was no hand-holding, no kind of background information, nothing guiding you along the way on kind of helping you make that decision, actually. And that's fine if you know what you're after, but if you don't, then it becomes a very frustrating experience and you, you end up leaving the website and going elsewhere to find find that kind of, you know, someone who guides you through it and gives you a bit of an advice, just as you would get if you walked into a store and you could ask someone for advice. So that's the that's the importance and making sure that you can tailor the experience based on the relevancy of the information that's needed and the relevancy of kind of level of detail that they need as well. Um, and like you said, it's not it's not us it's not our story. It's our story combined with the user, the person on the other end who's going to be using it. It needs to resonate with them in order for it to be a successful experience. So the more we understand about the people who are going to be using our product and service, um, the more better our product and service can is able to resonate with them. And that means that we need to understand that their story and their backstory. I love this story, story listening, not just storytelling. No, absolutely. Exactly. Part, oh, yes, exactly. Yeah. A big part <laughs> of storytelling is actually being a good listener as well. Mm. And it's incredibly important. I mean, I, I talk about that towards the end of... Um, of my book as well about kind of storytelling in the workplace that it's a lot of the time is understanding just as we do with with users we need to understand the audience that we're presenting things to and we need to understand what resonates with them that's about listening it's about taking in what what they will pay attention to and what will make them kind of close their ears so to speak and uh, and not pay attention so Good storytelling, being a good storyteller is about being a good listener. It's back in the days, the people who were good storytellers, they knew how to adapt the story to the audience in questions. They could kind of look at the audience and see based on their reactions if they should up the comic level a bit or if they should downplay things. And that's very much about what, what we need to do today as well, both online and offline. That is so great. <laughs> that, and a great note to end on as well. Uh, I've had so much food for thought in this, and uh, this interview itself will be a great story for me to tell others about uh, today and uh, going forward. Mm. So thank you so much, Anna. Thanks, Anna. You're welcome. Thank you for having me. I do really like Anna's idea about um, doing happy journeys, but also doing unhappy journeys. I remember me and you, Pat, and we attended her uh, one of the prototypes of her workshop um, a couple of years back when she ran it here in Stockholm, and we talked about the 
happy journeys and unhappy journeys. And that stuck Mm. in my mind back then as well, that it felt quite easily to apply, easy to apply, that if you've done some journey mapping, you've done some of the exercises that we often would do, we'd workshop our way through as part of projects, then, you know, doing another loop through it, but saying, okay, what happens if it's not as successful, if it's not as happy experience, what happens if it's the worst case scenario and working it through? I think all of us could do that. It doesn't take much. You don't need to be so advanced in your narratives and storytelling abilities within the project or how mature you are in that aspect of things to pull off an unhappy journey story map. Yeah, exactly. Then you can also use that to help you predict what can go wrong so that you can mitigate any negative impact before it happens. Uh, That's a really good tool for that. Mm. I think it's, it also makes me think about Anna's example about um, Facebook um, serving up um, yeah, old memories and updates and so on. And I just realised about how how shit a story Facebook is. <laughs> <laughs> no, but it's just like, it's really, it's a really messed up narrative. And uh, I hadn't really thought about, I suppose, how messed up the narrative is. And Realising while we've been talking to Anna that one of the reasons why the narrative's so bad now on things like Facebook um, and even at times LinkedIn and, and Twitter is the goddamn algorithms. Because again, it, it comes down to it's, it, then it's, it's the social media platform deciding this is the story you should see now. And it, it actually takes away the, the option for me as a user to choose my own story, to actually choose the story that I want to read uh, because Dave decided for me. Yeah. So, you know, normally because time... <laughs> When things are in chronological order, then you can still, you know, make your own adventure. You can write your own story because you can look through the updates and okay, oh, Pez just written a, a follow-up to that thing you wrote yesterday or that thing you wrote last week, or you know, you you remember updates from certain people and piece the story together yourself. Whereas with these algorithms that throw things at you in the order it decides, you can end up with weird situations like, um, you know, here's the. You know, here's our baby girl that's just been born at three 3.53 um, today. That turns up in your feed before the post saying, oh, God, the contractions have started. We're on our way into um, you know, the, the hospital. Uh, so right. you, you yeah. get, it becomes a really messed up story because the, the baby update got the most likes. Um, mm. oh, and this is, this, is the same, so this is the same on all these ones where it's an algorithm. The algorithm's not serving us. It's not helping us tell it's not helping helping our story right it, it's it's quite obvious uh, uh, that it, it's actually only helping the platform in that it's uh, it's promoting engagement rather than autonomy uh, uh, that the user is given yes so in the end i mean a lot of these tools that they say that they do for us and do for the user they're reminding us of, of past events and, and bringing them to our attention they're doing that uh, at a time when i did not ask for it and they're bringing content that i may not have asked for and warrant, wanted to see again mm. Uh, so they're really, really pushing stuff in my face that that I can't really say I'm not. I don't want this. That said, uh, I know so if someone's going to object, there are really complicated settings buried deep down that actually can help you avoid some of these things. But uh, the primary algorithm that James is talking about, you can't really avoid that because most people have so many friends now that this is the way that they have solved having many friends. That you don't have the timeline anymore to just bring content to your attention that they think will get the most they think you will most appreciate in the sense that you will stay with the platform for 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 longer and i think here with all these um top stories um settings and algorithms they've 
they've turned two, they've combined two features, or they've put two features against each other as if they're polarities, whereas actually they don't cancel each other out. Having a summary mm. of what's happened since you were last visiting a platform is something interesting in itself, and perhaps even provides a certain story, or at least the seeds to stories. But the chronological timeline is a, is a fundamental red thread, as Anna says in the interview, and a, and a, and a narrative arc that you shouldn't destroy. Mm. I mean, there's also, I mean, uh, what, what that makes me think of also, that we, when you're looking at the timeline, sometimes it just jumps as well. Uh, you can't even stay in the same location for a while without the platform actually deciding, no, you should have scrolled by now. So it adds content in front of you as you're reading something and you you instantly forget, oh, who was it that wrote that? And you spend time trying to find the content that you wanted to see to actually, that uh, that was part of your story that you wanted to, to make mm. and not their story. Yeah, I think we've all been there when you've been looking, say, like at something on Instagram and then you wanted to show someone else it or tell someone else it and you're kind of scrolling down. Mm. Where, where is it? It's not there anymore because the algorithm mm. has changed its position in your story. Mm. So you lose all your hooks. And I think that's, like Anna says, well, towards the end of the interview, it, it, it's, you know, we've got to, it's the user on the other end. It's their story. Understanding their story and their backstory and combining that with ours, not destroying it with ours. Exactly. And also what, what I really love about what she's saying is this, this point of acknowledging emotions beyond happiness, that you actually realize that people are complete and complicated and stuff happens and it's supposed to happen because that's what life is. So acknowledge that and embrace it instead of trying to avoid it. Story arcs, three acts, listening. <laughs> Some good advice there. So thank you for spending your time with us. Links and notes from this episode can be found on uxpodcast.com if you can't find them in your pod playing tool of choice. And remember, you can contribute to funding the show by visiting uxpodcast.com slash support. Remember to keep moving. See you on the other side. But now that they're easing lockdown restrictions, they've said that six of the seven dwarfs can finally meet again. So six of the seven dwarfs can finally meet again. Yeah, one of them wasn't happy. <laughs> <laughs>